Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and the fifth in our series of joint programmes with the Grantham Institute, Climate Change and Environment at Imperial College London. The Institute is home to some of the world's leading scientists, researchers and innovators, whose combined expertise offer us an inspiring vision of what a zero carbon future could be like. We've looked already looked at the challenges of waste, energy and transport, but today we're exploring what the future could be like in terms of innovation. How can we use developments in design, technology, engineering and science to create environmentally sustainable solutions to address the challenges of the climate emergency? I'm delighted to be joined by my guest today. I have two professors in the studio, Richard Templer and Peter Charles. And this promises to be a fascinating and I think quite challenging conversation. I'll introduce them properly in a minute, but just to tell you a little bit about their backgrounds, Richard Templer is the Director of Development for Chemistry and the Director of Innovation at the Grantham Institute and a leader in the field of clean tech innovation. Before joining Grantham, he led the UK Clean Tech Accelerator, which has not only trained almost 2,000 students in the arts of environmental sustainable innovation and entrepreneurship, but has incubated 50 new clean tech businesses that between them have raised over $180 million in investment since 2012. He's the current Hoffman Chair in Chemistry and is a member of the London Sustainable Development Commission. His research interests are now principally focused on manipulating the micromechanical stresses in lipid membranes in order to create ordered sponge-like structures that can be swollen indefinitely. You can tell by my reading of that, they have absolutely (laughs) no idea what that means. And I did ask my scientist daughter, and she just raised her eyebrows to the sky. So um, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, Richard. Peter Childs is the professorial lead in engineering design and was the founding head of the Dyson School of Design Engineering at Imperial. His general interests include creativity, the application of creative tools, mechanical and product design, robotics, rotating flow, temperatures and its measurement, sustainable energy component, concept and system design. This is really tough for me. But more important than that, he also used to run a sweater factory in Peru. So he is a man of many talents and many interests and we are going to have the most amazing conversation. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to Planet Pod and welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. So to kick us off in this enormous subject, um, perhaps we should start by talking about what we actually mean by innovation in relation to climate change and climate science. Richard, could you just give us a bit of an overview and some context setting? Oh, OK. Um, I, think, I think I'd start with a very simple and broad definition of, of innovation, which is um, ideas usefully applied. Um, I think in the case of, of climate change, it's, it's maybe better to say ideas purposefully applied and, and by that I mean um, ideas that make a difference to either the causes or the effects of climate change. And that turns out, to, I mean, I think that's this century's uh, great challenge. Um, we're facing an existential crisis for um, the way that we live, that humans live. And indeed, we've put other um, beings at peril as well. So we've got to do innovation with boundaries in a way that we've never done before. We have to understand that what we do 
impacts all sorts of other um, activities, uh, systems, biological systems, human systems, that's a great challenge and one that um, I think requires new ways of, of, of thinking about innovation um, that are different from the innovations that were done even maybe 25 years ago. So there's a kind of intersectionality, to use that buzzword about this, isn't there, which is why I was so fascinated to, to, to look into your background, Peter, because that connection between arts and science and, and the disciplines and, you know, the fact that you have a chemist here as well as a designer, and it, there's that connection that will make innovation possible, but probably makes it much more challenging and exciting than it maybe was, as you were saying, a few years ago. I think uh, we, we're beginning to say some of the issues that you can't do anything in isolation. And if you are pushing forward some technology or some behavioural change activity at scale, it's going to have impact across society or across your ecosystem or your, your locality. And the days of being naive and just releasing a new platform or some web service or some app in into the world and just going well I'm going to make some money out of that or I'm going to get some some change and not thinking through the consequences the long-term consequences unless you do that and unless you have that holistic viewpoint you considering all of the knowledge we got from the humanities the arts the sciences technology and business philosophy and religion taking all of these things into account then you're you're probably just going to do a lot of harm. Could, could, I, could I maybe play with yeah. a, an example? Um, one that's been preoccupying me a little bit recently. Um, we use organic molecules in all sorts of parts of our lives, and drugs, plastics, um, all sorts of other materials, tarmac, for example. All of these things uh, have, are rich in, in carbon. Currently, we, we make those products out of um, petroleum. So um, we mine the petroleum, we use most of it, about 90% of it we burn, and then there's 10% left that we use for these materials. So people are thinking, well, you know, we, we, we're going to stop um, mining for oil and gas. Um, I would be more precise, what we've got to stop doing is burning the stuff. But anyway, there's a general feeling you should stop mining for it. So then people start talking about, well, what are the alternatives? What can we do? And an, an innovative alternative would be to go directly to plant materials, woody materials, uh, starches and things like that, and use those, convert those into molecules that we can use. And indeed, I'm my my entry into the field of climate change innovation was via that idea <clears throat> and it has great appeal it feels like you're in you're doing something natural and blah 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 but unfortunately what you're doing is you're taking material from natural ecosystems and those ecosystems are under a lot of pressure at the moment we we are looking at extinctions um, which if you're not alarmed by it I think you need to look again. It's alarming. These are fellow creatures whose presence on the planet is important to us and important to each other. And so, you know, we're, we're doing something really quite dangerous. 
So you sort of think, oh, there's this nice natural way of getting materials, but it might impact on food, on ecosystems. I could go on. Mm. So you're left with what I think is a very typical and stark position in climate change innovation, which is you're going to have to work out actually what is the best route to those carbon-rich materials that you use to replace the 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 huge carbon footprint that currently exists from making them. How do you do that? And you might end up in, in places that some would find uncomfortable, which is actually mining oil and gas and converting that into these materials might be preferable than mining natural systems, forests and waste materials that come from nature. And those those are the sort of things that I think are out there. That's that's what the territory looks like when it comes to climate change innovation. Working things out is going to be so important, but that doesn't mean that, that we paralyse ourselves in inaction whilst we work things out. <clears throat> and, and part of the joy of innovation, and there is joy in innovation, is the journey. It's doing your developments, realising that you have something, and actually realizing it in the marketplace, getting it out there. It may not be the best solution or the ideal solution at that point in time, but we all know about innovation that as you push something into widespread use, you come up with better and better solutions, ways of implementing it in an ever improving fashion. So whilst I absolutely get what Richard is saying, that, that we need to think it through and, and work it out, I don't think that we have the luxury of an expansive time frame to absolutely get it right. Yeah. And instead, um, we're going to have to jump to solutions, implement them at scale. And unfortunately, we know from history that we'll get some things wrong. Look at lithium ion batteries. Everybody thought, oh, fantastic. But for the scientists listening, you, you 800 megajoules per kilogram for the energy associated to with, with lithium, their consequences, they're not innocent. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And sometimes we'll say that you're carrying a lithium ion battery in your pocket is one of the most obnoxious things you can do to the environment. And nobody knows. Um, or <laughs> taking a photograph on and posting it on your social media when you're on holiday. And everybody looks at it and then think, and then, and then you're inadvertently encouraging all your friends and network to want to go on that holiday too with all of the carbon emissions associated with it. So our very innocent actions can result in immense impact. But there is um, huge potential. There are so many companies, scientists, uh, innovators around the world pushing forward really exciting ideas. In, in, in the introduction to Richard, you talked about the 50 companies that he's been associated with, and, and I've had the, the, um, uh, the privilege of, of engaging with all sorts of companies in, in the area of uh, uh, improvements of efficiency and retrofit for homes and, and, and other what I would call climate or sustainability-related innovations. There is huge potential in this area. Yeah, and it's not a black and white picture, is it? And I think that, that just to go back to your point about the mining, I mean, we have to, there are going to be some trade-offs, aren't there? If we are going to achieve net zero in anything like the time frame that we need to, and it'd be interesting to think what you think, what our chances are. Um, 
we're going to have to compromise. We're going to have to trade off one behaviour against another or one activity against another. So it isn't, there isn't one solution that will solve all of our problems. And I think you're right, Peter, a lot of this has got to be almost trial and error, but we haven't, in a way, we've got to skip the sort of pilot stage, haven't we? Because we've got to go to rollout because we need to get this stuff out into the market and into widespread use quickly. So so innovation is probably feels a little bit different now than it felt, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I think actually it's, it's really interesting to Peter talk about these things. He and I have uh, had intersected and, and worked on a number of um, startups, me supporting them, uh, Peter supporting them. And um, that's a really strong lesson in some of the things that you need to do. So um, I, I want to sound professorial now. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. You're looking um, very professorial. <laughs> I'm looking very professorial, but I'm not feeling very professorial. I think the way I, I would put this, uh, and I'm, I'm summarising what Peter said, which I, everything he said I agree with. Um, we've got to do innovation, uh, deliver things to the market that have an impact in a time scale which is 10 times shorter than the Industrial Revolution, involves 10 times as many people as the Industrial Revolution, and we've got to do it without making too many boo-boos. I think that's the challenge. And not that many people, I feel, have been thinking about actually what does that take? Because that in itself is an innovation. How do we innovate the way that we innovate? To do it quicker, to do it at bigger scale, and without making too many cock-ups along the way. Let's do one of the muck-ups that we, we see all around the world. Um, we know that the uh, energy associated with buildings and our homes uh, it's not a good news story. We either need to heat them in immense amount, like in, in countries like the UK for certain certain months of the year, or we need to do, put in a huge amount of energy into cooling them, uh, large sectors of, of, uh, of the world. You'll get experts coming along and they'll go, well, let's knock these down and put up energy efficient homes. But this can be an enormous mistake. Um, with enormous energy consequences. Those buildings required vast amounts of energy to put up in the first place. And we have retrofit measures to actually improve energy efficiency of just about everything. The technology in our homes, technology in our buildings, the buildings themselves, the, yeah, ways, yeah. the ways, of, ways that you've had programmes about mobility and, and, and moving. So we've got lots of great solutions out there. But so often we seem to just go, well, let's scrap the old system and implement a new system. And then 20 years later, we discover, or, or actually sometimes just within two years, you discover the new system is, is chronically awful. So, but is that human behaviour or is that innovators and people wanting the new? I think it's because bad, bad decision making. It's, it's, news, just, it's just it's, it's sometimes vested interest or chronic mistakes Sometimes experts. it's economics as well, isn't it? Because bizarrely, the economics work against you. So it's, it's, it's cheaper for a developer to knock down a perfectly functioning building, put up a new building because of, you know, VAT and tax and all of those breaks. So, you know, sometimes it's the economic system that works against the logics. I mean, our, our, the pers logics. our personal habitat is a wonderful topic for discussion because we all experience it. Um, and when I started off with a climate kick, after a year, I came to this moment of thinking, 
You keep on telling other people what to do, Richard. How about you actually go and sort your own bloody home out? <laughs> um, am I allowed to say bloody on this? Oh, you can say whatever you okay. like on the planet. Excellent. Um, and if you've, I'm sure that Peter's gone through the process, probably you have as well, Amanda. When you start doing that, actually there's a whole bunch of nitty-gritty things that you have to decide. And you don't do some things for all sorts of very practical reasons. So a very obvious one, which I think can also bring us to the topic of innovation is, I live in London. Um, our homes here have got very small um, rooms. And so when you say to your wife, we've got a Victorian house, it leaks heat, let's insulate the walls. And then you say, well, how are we gonna do that? You say, well, here, here's the insulation. And you look at a thing that looks like a, like a very thick Bible in thickness. You say, let's put that on the wall and then plaster over it. And you start working at how small your bedroom is going to be and what you can fit into it. And, and that's very practical. So, you know, that, that observation is the prompt for innovation. It's the prompt for thinking, okay, so doing that, putting something that thick in is really disruptive to move all the all the radiators, your window embrasures become clogged up. What the heck are we gonna do? So the answer surely would be, I just want something that's thinner, but equally good at insulating. So hey presto, you've got a reason now for doing some innovation. Hmm. But do you think that, I mean, I just wanted to unpick some of the things you were saying about the, the sort of science behind it. I mean, you know, that's a classic example. Is that what's driving some of those, you know, what I would call pure scientists to look at the, the chemistry or the mechanics? Because if we're looking for a solution, we've got to, you know, here's my need, I need thinner insulation. Are we going to get our models from, from nature? Are we going to get our models from, from just putting chemicals together and exploring things in laboratories? How is that, how are we going to translate that need into the practical innovation that's happening, you know, kind of in the labs and in Imperial and then being rolled out in startups. I mean, I just, because I'm trying to get my head around what the process is, because I can see where the gaps are. We can all see where the gaps are. I mean, we, they've got lots of problems we need to fix. How do we get that into the system and create the innovation without having it channeled, you know, through the two of you? Because you can't solve everything. I'm, Most things, obviously, well, yeah, but not everything. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are. Omnipotent as you are, you know. Yeah. It's, it's not just young people who are interested in sustainability. You know, there is this huge scientific community and or innovation community, scientific community. Uh, the world of humanities is interested in sustainability too. So we've got this huge body of, um, as you say, academic scientists, researchers around the world who are engaged, who are interested. You, You've titled this program Innovation, and innovation, we, we heard the definition of the, uh, I, I call it the realisation of value from creativity. That value could be societal or it could be financial. And in research, I think we need to be much more astute about looking at what we've got and our processes, and then fast tracking it towards implementation at scale. And perhaps we do need to challenge some of our nature as academics. You've pro probably read an academic article, then you get to the conclusions, and then it's full of caveats. It's full of, um, we need more funding, we need to do more research. Yeah. And perhaps we need to be more, a little bit more braver and bolder in 
doing our work and targeting and saying, this is what I found out. And arising from this, this is something that I'm going to stake um, my reputation or whatever, or even my future on, at implementing and implementing at scale and actually giving those recommendations and then following through on it. You know, not letting go and moving off to a different project because we got we got issues uh, in in society that we actually need to implement or tackle within months or a few years. We don't have decades for this particular one. Can I maybe tell you at least about my the experiences, uh, especially with the with the climate kick, uh, which was actually the thing that the, mm. that, that the accelerator yeah. came out of. Um, so we, we had a great privilege. We were given money by the European Commission um, to partner with, with, with businesses, with, uh, with political um, entities and with other uh, knowledge institutions to try and do the sort of thing um, that we're talking about today. And I, I'd... I'd, I'd the, none of these things are ever linear, but the only way you can describe it, obviously, is linear, because I haven't worked out how to talk in parallel about things yet. Um, so the, I think the first thing is you have to you have to recognise that you're trying to address challenges, and you're trying to address the really big challenges. At this point, addressing you know, small challenges is lovely, but it's not going to solve, take a big chunk out of the the challenge or the problems that we've got. So one, choose your problems. And that turns out to be not quite as trivial as you think, because when you talk to people about what the problem actually is, it doesn't just drop out. So you need to have discussions, you need to have expertise from a variety of different perspectives in order to really define a problem well. So that's the first thing. Define and your problem will be multifaceted as well, yeah, multi-layered yeah. and, and, and covered lots of different. So that's exactly aspects. that's exactly what I mean. So yeah, we could have done this thing about materials. We could have done about the you know keeping homes comfortable. Yeah. These are multifaceted. Yeah. Uh, what are the hairy audacious problems? <laughs> um, so first of all, define the problem well. Do it well. The next thing is okay. We've got all this expertise and creativity around us. How do we how do we extract the most promising ideas and the most promising teams to execute these execute those ideas? Because I think Peter's been quite coy about what it takes to create a business with a really great proposition. It takes a great proposition, but it takes a great team as well. And that's sometimes where people need to understand where their strengths are. So there's also a thing about creating teams where I'm really good at ideas, but don't ask me to make a business. Well, how do I engage with people who I'm really great at making businesses, but don't ask me to get an idea? So there's also a thing about creating communities that can take ideas, make teams, and push these things forward. So those are two key steps. The next one is to do with the environment in which they find themselves that allows them to develop quickly. So <clears throat> the accelerator program we had was surrounded by the climate kick. 
surrounded by people like Peter, I was able to engage people like Peter because I had some money. Mm. I could say, okay, can you do this experiment? Can you help them with this design? All of those things speed things up, which is critically important. And, and, it, and it did work. So uh, Rich and I met 10 years ago or so, and uh, the Climate Kick, the Knowledge Innovation Centre, invested in a company called Naked Energy. They were doing photovoltaic thermal gadgets. They had an idea, but they didn't actually know that it would work or how effectively it, it would work. So that funding enabled tests at a university I had the joy of doing them, cracked lots of equipment and, and made <laughs> things work. Now, several years later, that company is operating at scale. They have a large production unit and they're doing devices with 70 or 80% efficiency of that order for putting on top of, of, of roofs. We call it the Rolls-Royce of, um, uh, of photovoltaics and, and, and thermal equipment because it's so much more efficient than, than, than the old-fashioned PV panels that mm. we've been putting on our roofs because it's, it's taking advantage of all the thermal energy. So this kind of thing or this kind of innovation and the ecosystem that Richard's talking about makes the scientists bright ideas and collaboration. You're absolutely right. You can't do it on your own. And, and um, I'm, I've, I've got expertise in heat transfer. You mentioned that earlier. Met an architect and then met a, uh, a, a brilliant manager and we set up QBot and we make little robots which go underneath houses and spray thermal insulation on the underside of your timber or concrete flooring. It doesn't change the world, but it can improve the thermal efficiency of your home by about 15%. And it doesn't mean you've got a Bible on the wall. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't reduce the, the internal space for the, for the building occupants. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to boast about it. A fantastic Dude. innovation that actually makes a difference within two days or one day. It takes takes one or two days to make the intervention in a home. It's not hugely expensive, so it's affordable. And we've, do, we've done this now on thousands of homes. We would like to do it on millions of homes. The, and it, but it's only by doing it on millions of homes that you can turn off those two um, uh, carbon burning power stations. Mm, mm. But that's what it would mean. We do six million homes in the UK or two, uh, a few million homes in the UK with this innovation. We can turn off two of our current uh, uh, um, uh, energy production power stations, which you know, typically gas turbine engines. So, so, so this raises the question for me is about how do we scale up then? Because that's what you're both talking about, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you've talked about models that would work in a you know, in the confines of a university where you've got the luxury of time and you've got a really bright community oh, around you. How are you going to take this out and scale up to the speed no, no, no. we so, need? So, so I want to be really, really clear. So actually both of those companies were in our accelerator. I'm dead proud of both of them. Um, and it's 56 companies. Mm. The number's gone up and it's 220 million now of investments. Which gives us hope. Old data on the imperial side. I know, I'm sorry. We, we, we must update more frequently. So, so, so let me be really specific about what the model was about how a university can help businesses in this area innovate and get out quickly to the market. And it's not that they're being protected by the university. It's just the university is opening up its doors and is able to provide help. Those companies are all independent companies. Mm. Um, in fact, neither of them were, were from um, graduates of, of, of Imperial College itself. So 
Um, what we can do, it's very interesting, you're asking about scaling up. Um, you can also ask, where are people like Peter and me useful? We're useful at the, sta the early stages, the stages when it's, there's still questions about how is this going to work? You know, um, what can we do to make this a more attractive object for people to buy or make it easier to manufacture? We can help with all of that. The stage where you scale up, so that normally means that you've got an investment that goes, the first stages are between five and 20 million pounds mm. of investment. Mm. Um, that particular region of investment is at the moment very difficult. So, so that's where we need those incubator funds. And is that where private equity comes in or government funding? Or how do we get those incubator funds to get to do that scale? So I'm going, to, I'm going to say something rather brutal, is that, that this gap exists and particularly exists in the, in, in, in the UK. Um, venture capital, the mm. private equity guys, they're tending to go for something much more secure that's already got evidence of manufacture. So they're going from, let's say, 10 million... To, well, you know, 10 million to 50 million, banks are going from 50 to several hundred million. Those bits are okay. There's this blooming great big gap. I think that this is so urgent that government needs to intervene. Now, government has done an intervention worth 40 million. I just want to say to them, come on, get real. Yeah. 40 million is, is not even a sticking plaster over a gaping wound. It's it's an insult to intelligence. They need to really be thinking of hundreds of millions to billions because this gap is the gap that's stopping flow to real results. And how, how important is the profit motivator in this? Because, I mean, is it important? Because you were talking about we've got to get those businesses out there. Some of them may fail. I mean, you know, innovators and, and startups are usually because people want to do something but they also want to make some money so so how do we do that trade-off between think, profit um, and non-profit motivations depend person to person so you'll meet uh, uh, people running startups and their motivation will just be because they want to change the world mm. some people are in it for, for money some people just love doing a business so you know, it's going to vary person to person there will be some pie charts showing showing what, what are the, what the principal drivers really are the people I meet doing startups, they know that they might make money, but I don't, I don't, I, it's not their principal motivation. Okay. Their motivation is exciting, excitement about the idea, or they're just driven by the problem and they know that they want to do something. You then hit a related problem around innovation or an issue around innovation. Uh, we've talked a lot about startups. Startups might be one, two, three percent of the solution that you need for net zero within 15 years if that's because we, we have huge uh, companies out there who are brilliant at implementing things at scale if they choose um, and so you know, startup cultures are important but it takes a few years or several years for yeah. that startup to grow to an, a small and medium enterprise and then you know, might take a few more years for it to become a unicorn something worth a billion dollars We've also got to tackle innovation within the big incumbents. Mm. And there has been great innovation during my lifetime. Things like the uh, uh, gas turbine engines used to turn gas into part, part of the power, um, power production for our electricity that we use every day. 
When I first came across that technology, it had an efficiency of the order of 30%. And then in late 1980s, the world record was 40%. Now there are combined cycle uh, gas turbine plants with an efficiency of 60%, almost touching the efficiency of a fuel cell. So there is innovation that can be done with the big incumbents, mm. um, which will improve matter at scale, improve matters at scale. So whilst I get excited about startups, I can also get excited about a big company wanting to transform itself and the impact it's having on our environment, but at that scale, because they've got six million customers. Yeah. So it goes back to your point, isn't it, about this isn't linear, this is more of a matrix. And that idea around collaboration goes not just across disciplines, but across sectors and across organisations, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to give you an example of one of our of our startups to show you how um, tangential, how odd um, things might be. And I, I'm going to tell you this story because this is a story of, of graduate students from Imperial, graduates of Peter's course. <laughs> um, so the, there's, there's a company that um, started off, the company's name was Skipping Rocks Labs, um, and they had a product which they called OHO. Um, now it's called Not Pla, as in not plastic. So we took them under our, under our wing, and they've become an incredibly successful um, business. Um, and in this case, it's, it's, it's a business that is not compliant with the current way um, the industry works. So what industry are we talking about? We're, we're talking about bottling. We're talking about mm. how do you take liquids and move them around and you know, use them as a, as a customer. So that's a plastic bottle, right? It's, it's where there's been a whole load of, of, of um, disquiet after Blue Planet aired. Well, before Blue Planet aired, they'd already decided that plastic was a problem. And the reason plastic is a problem was, was not just the fact that it provides, when not handled well in, in the waste mm -hmm. chain, it produces waste that causes all sorts of pollution problems. Um, it's got another problem, and that problem is that a litre bottle of water takes 10 litres of water to create. And that 10 litres of water, of course, has to be pure water. It has to go through pipes, all of which takes energy, all of which produces emissions. So there's a whole bunch of climate change aspects here. There's the water itself. There's the energy it takes to use it. It's just, you know, looking daft. Now, the big multinationals like Coca-Cola um, have been working on, and, and I admire them for this. This is not a criticism of them at all. Let's just explain what NOTPLA is. So... Um they, they produce a sphere, um, it's an alginate gel containing water or some other liquid, which might be very pleasurable. And for to those consume. people who don't know what an alginate gel is? So it comes from algae. So Like a seaweed gel. And so you might have this uh, sphere a bit bigger than a, a table tennis ball and you pop it into your mouth and then you get this explosion of water um, and and and, and or, or if it's if it's another liquid, whatever is the taste associated with that in your mouth, 
absolutely no waste. They they provided the solution for for drinking at this year's London Marathon. Yeah, and yeah. so and at Glastonbury as well. Uh, so you can buy it itself. But that that raises the issue you were talking about: damaging. Is there a potential damage to the ecosystem if we're taking out lots of seaweeds, or are those so, things that can be cultivated? Without damaging our natural environment. So, just at the moment, there's there's a there's 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 a large enough supply um, for doing what they're doing. But it's a good question, and it's, it it refers back to the things that Peter was saying. You have to start working on these these things and trying. Um, the point is, this works. Um, mm. People are buying this stuff, mm. and in fact, they've expanded beyond. Um, spheres with liquids they've now got tubes um, they've they've made um, receptacles that are coated in this so that you can potentially for example have greasy things inside cardboard so and the whole thing can just be recycled yeah. more easily and all of that adds and when you when you start working out how that works that is something that I think would never have been invented in a big corporate big corporates have been looking at ways of reducing the amount of plastic or using replacement plastics. They haven't been looking at something completely at right angles mm. from the way they work. And I think that's what the great power of independent thinking outside of corporates is. What I hope will happen is that the big corporates who can market and deliver at scale will start to identify the things that are really going to make a difference and work with them create joint ventures which will allow the scaling at scale and at speed that we need happen. We could talk about this all day and we're going to have to come back and do another programme because there's so much to say but I have to ask you, can we be hopeful? I mean we've talked you know about these fabulous innovations but you keep saying Peter we're running out of time you know if we're going to make 2030 which many of the politicians want us to is there hope or or is it achievable? I am inherently hopeful and optimistic, and I have reasons for that. I you know, engage in 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 technology. I, I work with businesses. I I, I work with students uh, who are so exciting. I have a faith, um, and have faith that there is a lot of hope out there. We see technologies coming on stream. Some of them you, people started working on 40, 50 years ago, and they're beginning to mature. Other ideas like the Noplar um, eradication of packaging come along five years ago and now they're a, they're a business employing 40 or 50 people in London and they're, they're on the J curve, they're in massive growth. They have the potential to go worldwide. So I think you can see sectors where you could, you, you could tackle one or 2% of the problem and then with 50 or 60 innovations, then all of a sudden you, you're tackle, tackling 70 or 80% of mm. the worldwide problem. Yeah. And I think this can be done at scale and quickly. So to me, there really is hope. Uh, those of us involved in innovation are perennial optimists <laughs> and always hopeful. I think we can get close to net zero, which I think is what you're, you're talking about. Um, and I'm going to get quite specific. I think it needs massive governmental intervention. This is the sort of the sort of economy that we need is the type of economy you have during a war when you mobilise because you're under threat, and the if you like the pure market pressures, the commercial market pressures, are put to one side because you're under existential pressure. We're under existential pressure now. Let's recognise that. The thing that I 
would really most like to see is for us to recognise that the emission of greenhouse gases, principally carbon dioxide, but there are other very potent gases as well, as being classed as pollutants. So the CO2 that we emit during processes that we undertake, including agriculture, mm. including manufacturing steel and cement, all of that is pollutant. As soon as you class it as a pollutant, the polluter has to pay for the pollution. That then sets up markets and ways of driving reduction in pollution. The reason I'm so interested in that is because we've also got to recognise that the pollution is up in the atmosphere already, it's in the oceans already, and it's creating disruption. We are The really big thing that we've got to face up to is we're going to have to remove those greenhouse gases actively, not just from the, from the chimney stack of a manufacturer, but what's in the atmosphere already now. And that's going to, those are really big challenges. We can't just do that with trees and plants. We're going to no. have to do other things as well. That's where I think some really big innovations are going to happen. So if there are any millionaires or billionaires out there, that's where your money should be going to help Absolutely. us to do that. Yeah, we need a complete paradigm shift about how we look at all of these things. So it's been fascinating. We could have talked about this for hours and I'm going to ask you if you'll come back and do another programme with us because there's so much more to say. Huge thank you to my guests, Richard Templer and Peter Charles. Thank you and thank you to Imperial for supporting the series. If you like what you've heard, please get in touch. You can tweet us, Planet um, Planet Pod or Instagram us or get in touch via the website and don't forget to rate the programme because it always helps us. Thank you both so much and I'm Thanks encouraged I'm encouraged and I'm going leaving the studio with more hope than I came into Excellent. it. Excellent. So thank, thank you, you both. Very. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. 